In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone. I'm, well, it's obvious. I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family, from the Morehouse murders to haunted highways, this season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. This week, I am going to deal with a case which Dad sent me, apropos of nothing. Uh, Dad, it's really hard to sort of deal with this. This is, um, this is a file written by Dr. Giuseppe Dossi, the Chief of the Italian Office of the International Police. It is an extract from the International Criminal Police Review uh, back in 1950. It was originally published in Paris. This is, it's safe to say, not a Australian true crime case, but occasionally, given that we are men of the world, we do occasionally stray outside our borders. But Dad, I think it would be actually better if we didn't... I'm, I'm considering not reading this headline. I, I, I would actually like you to walk us through this case. First of all, what made you choose this case? What is it about this story that appeals to you? Well... Dearest Paul, yes, we have got something exciting happening in the next few weeks that I said, should we talk about it today? You said, not yet, Dad. Wait till mm-hmm. the end of the week. Yep. And it involves a lot of research about a particular um, path we're going to take. So in my research, mm-hmm. having access to restricted publications, yeah. and when I say restricted, I mean restricted. Um, and it's very interesting because occasionally one comes across another story whilst doing research with a certain focus i came across this story the headline of the story i agree with you i don't think we should read the headline until later because it's an interesting headline because it well let's just say that it talks about using a particular um no we can't we'll have (laughs) to sort of we've got to tease this out but we don't want to bury the lead uh at all so but that's what caught my eyes initially yeah. Uh, and there's a photograph of her. 
Yeah. And um, describe, if you will, this uh, this woman who was arrested for this thing, which we won't say what mm. it is. Well, it, it's in the public record that she was described as unattractive. Oh, um, that's just sad. A little unkind. I agree, but it, but then Paul, you and I have got access to the photograph, and okay, it's... Let, me, let, me, let me bring this up because it really, listeners. There is an inner beauty that shines out for me True. from the um, ugliest Duggo. Hang on a sec. Let's see. Her name's uh, Leonarda Clanquilly, I think. She is... Um, If she was grinning, I mean, with a kindness in her eyes, she might be, uh, you know, nice she looking. A, she has a wry grin. I was trying to come up with an analogy as to her looks. And if I um, came across her in Long Bay Jail, which is a man's jail, mm. uh, I think she'd be... She'd be sort of at the lower end of the spectrum in terms of looks. And she's got sort of a... But then her profile is slightly... Because uh, I really do like to draw out people's good features. And I think her profile yeah. is slightly nicer because it doesn't show her her sort of downward, Dad. tilted smile. Dad. Yes? You, so, <laughs> pointing out why someone has a good angle because it doesn't show their worse angles is not a compliment. <laughs> Look, well, this is not hot or not. We are not actually assessing. Here's the thing. Uh, it is interesting that this was published in 1950. And mm. it is interesting that in this era, it was regarded as, uh, if not okay, then at least vaguely acceptable in a piece about a killer to comment. Here's a question, Dad. If there was a, um, if this killer was a man, do you think the piece would have commented on whether the person, whether they were attractive or not? Probably no. not. But, of course not. But yes. you can't escape the realisation of... The fact that looking at a photograph of a human, yes, uh, taking into account subjectivity, mm -hmm. one cannot be, um, one cannot deny certain characteristics. It's like seeing someone. I know that beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but there's, and she's got a, she's got a rugged haircut. Well, <laughs> it's like a comb down. Dad, it's like a, you could, I mean. Paul, we're it's, spending an inordinate amount of time. It's Poor like a business. Brillo pad. No, look, you're the one who brought it up. I know, what I, I will know. say is that sometimes a piece of. Okay, first of all, it's interesting in the context of this case happened back in the 50s when people talked about looks in such a subjective way. Mm -hmm. It's in Italy. Um, and also, I think it's worth noting that sometimes in a case, a person's opinion of their own aesthetic will figure into motive, at least from their subjective point of view True. you know if somebody feels like let's say you've got a school shooter who feels aggrieved because he feels like he wasn't popular enough or mm. whatever and you know, it, it's it's bullshit it's not mm. it's not a valid excuse but uh it is something that might come up in terms of their psychological profile mm. did this killer's looks um factor into the deaths in any way no okay then we need to move on please i agree <laughs> paul i have i've not been able to help myself reading snippets of this story to christine oh okay i was reading it to her over the weekend and i couldn't help myself she's heading off for work this morning and yep. i just had to sort of just lay it on and she actually involuntarily even though this is the most it's it's up there it, this is definitely in the top five most despicable terrible bizarre crimes that i believe we've ever discussed oh that's God. that's why we're talking about it um but Christine's comment this morning was an interesting one. She simply said, is there anything that this woman didn't do in terms of her modus operandi? Mm. It is so fucked up, listeners. And I do like to tease out certain... I can tease anything out. 
I could tease out of the manufacture of a pin. But this story is so fascinating. Now, there's a part to this story that remains unanswered. I also, once I found out about the story through the restricted publication, did a lot of my own external research. Mm -hmm. um, and listeners, you're going to hear things that we're going to tell you this morning that are not in the public domain. That is a fact. Because what we've got here is a police document, whereas the other documents are based on hearsay, you know, classic media, journalists, artistic license, creativity. There's yeah. none of that. In this, in this report, it's just the, the facts, facts yep. which I love. Uh, so I find it very troubling that this particular woman lost eight of her children when they were young. They died. Did you? Did that not strike you, Paul, as being problematic? And I, to, to, that would not happen today. But there's no further mention of the eight children that died. Now she believes mm. this is the, the 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 murderess, shall we say? Her story goes along the lines that her mother put a hex on her and said because. This woman, the murderess, did not marry the, the the man that her mother had wanted her to, similar to an arranged marriage. So she really pissed the mother off. And it's it's it came out later in court that the murderess's mother had, had put sort of, we talk about dying declarations. Yeah. As the mother was dying, she, she put this hex. Now, that's very important, the hex, because this is a lot about witchcraft and demons and satanic rituals and the occult. So picture a small town in northern Italy and the the murderess, she, we, they've never been able to get to the bottom of what instigated. Well, actually, there is a theory that we'll, we'll talk about at the very end, which I found, quite frankly, if it's true, very disturbing. Yeah. But the first victim was a woman. Now, I do not speak, I do not profess to have a grasp of the Italian language. So for any Italians out there... Just quickly, um, could you talk us through talk us through the, um, the killer? Who was she? What was she like? Where was she from? Just the basics. Okay, well, she was in her uh, 40s. Yep. She'd been married to a public servant who worked for Inland Revenue, which is okay. the, the taxation office. Yeah. She... She was described, and this is a word that would be you'd be smacked down in today's society. But she was described as an ordinary housewife, okay, at the time of her crimes. Now the crimes took place in 1939 and 40, which, as we all know, was the beginning of the Second World War. Yes, and she basically, if she'd been separated at this stage, she was the mother of four children of some age. Um, she had a son that attended university. And she had a very, very good reputation in her, in her village. She was um, well-liked. She was known to be a very good homekeeper. Yeah. And she, she loved her children. She actually really, really loved them. And basically, because all her eight of her previous children had died, she, the, the village felt that she had an extreme 
um, love and affection for the remaining four. Okay. And things she was known as a local tarot reader. She did palm readings. She did all sorts of um, sort of sort of things to do with. I'm not sure whether we can say witchcraft, but she was uh, an investigator and uh, not investigator. She was a firm believer in the paranormal. So I got the vibe. She was more. It was more like an astrology thing as opposed astrology. to astrology. Okay. Okay. But sure. um, what happened was she. Basically, um, she chose her victims. Now, the, the similarity between the victims was that they were all solitary people. Okay. And not, not, apparently they had no ties. They had no children. And she felt that... Um, in fact, I'm going to read something, um, if, I, if I may, Paul. One last important detail before coming to the direct narration of the crimes, this is written by that very senior police officer, mm. all three victims were solitary people leading a provincial life without affection or ties, without children. They were beings of lost personalities, slowly spending their life days awaiting death. Jesus Christ. So basically people There's with more. no connections... Okay, sorry, go on, go on. Their disappearance was not noisy or mourned, but silent, like the sinking of a stone in the waters of a pond. Whoa. That's, that creates, I'm getting mild goosebumps on my That's shoulders. Dark poetry, Jesus, yeah. okay. Yeah. The first victim, her name was Faustina Setti. She was 73 years of age, <clears throat> a spinster, mm -hmm. and she was described Again, now these are words being used by a very senior international police officer, ladies and gentlemen. They're not my words, but these are the words of the day. So she was described as stout and being uncouth, unintelligent and credulous. Credulous means very much easily persuaded. Yeah. And her one goal in life, her one aim in her later years, was to get a husband. Our protagonist knew that and she came up with this incredible plan. The plan was that she knew a wealthy gentleman in another village nearby and she, she sits Faustina down and gets her to write basically a love letter to this gentleman. Mm-hmm. This is, this is extraordinary. She then... And because the lady, the first victim, was not that literate, basically, she could... She could apparently, according to court records, she could basically... She could not write very well. So the, the murderer, murderess, she dictates a letter for Faustina. Faustina pens this, this basically a love letter to this, this gentleman in the other village and then gives the letter to the murderess which she keeps and then a few weeks later she gets a, re a response from the man saying that he can't wait to meet her huh. and this elderly lady is so excited this is going to fulfill her her lifelong fantasy to marry might i say a man of some wealth She's so excited. She tells a few friends mm -hmm. 
And this is when it becomes sad. Our, our murderess gets this lady to sell her house and all her assets because she believes that she's going to move to a village nearby, marry this incredibly um, you know, well-off guy yeah. and spend the rest of her days you know, having a great time. So she, she converts all her assets into cash. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was around about 30,000 lira, which by all accounts was a lot of money yeah. in, in that period. And so she goes to um, you know, the murderess's house to say goodbye. She's sitting in the kitchen. Now, on the stove was a massive cauldron boiling away. It had been um, set in motion early that morning. Mm-hmm. Now, when I talk about these particular aspects of this story, I'm simply referring to information that, that comes to light later on um, that, that I have access to these these stories. So this is a very important part. She sits the lady down. Um, she's so excited. She's, she's paying respect to the lady that's basically match-made match her. Mm. And as she's sitting at the table, ready to depart, the, the murderess has a tomahawk. She comes up and with one fatal blow cuts her down right through the top of the head, basically splits her head. She then drags her into a room. She then cuts her up into nine chunks. Jesus okay? She then gets the nine pieces of her body mm-hmm. and she puts them into the cauldron. It boils away. Bearing in mind there are four children living in this house, they knew the mother was a, was a serious cook, but she was also a, an accomplished yeah. candle maker. And she made cakes, she made candles, she made all sorts of wonderful things. She then boils it down to this incredible liquid, like a stinking slurry. She then removes what's left of the body parts. Basically, they would have all been, well, the the skin would have all come away from the bones. She makes up uh, a series of packages and she then gets her son to throw some of the packages because apparently they'd gone off a bit into a nearby river. But with the remaining fluid in this massive cauldron, she boils it down into a slurry she then adds flour to it. She adds chocolate, cacao, and all the ingredients. And she manages on the table to make a fairly decent-sized pastry. She then kneads the pastry. And she then pops the little cakes in the oven. She then invites a lot of friends around, all female, and they have a wonderful afternoon tea party where they consume the boiled down body juices that she'd made into a cake. I feel sick. That's the first victim. The first 
The second victim. Oh, Jesus. And this is um, really pushing the envelope now. Mm. Now, before we finish with the first victim, she gets... I mean, there were a couple of people that were a little bit sort of concerned. You know, that they missed her a little bit. And what happens is the murderess had cunningly got her son to go to this that town and then he posts the letter from that town back to one of her friends saying that she's not coming back and she's having a great time. And in a matter of weeks, and this sort of shows the status of the first victim she had it with in that town, is that basically she was forgotten about and everyone just moved on. Sad, isn't it? Yeah. The second victim, Francesca Seovi, she mm-hmm. was a 55-year-old widow. She was a school teacher. Now, she's chosen as the second victim because the, the 30,000 lira, which, which was a lot of money, that yeah. she must have started thinking, wow, this is, this is really, really good. So she then chooses the second woman, this woman's, she's sad, she's living by herself. And she finds out that this particular school teacher um, she'd love to teach, at, at, you know, in maybe Milan. So basically, uh, the murderess, and I'll, I'm going to refer to her now as Mrs. Cianciuli, she reads the teacher's tarot and she tells her that there could be a teaching position at a girls' school in a city nearby. Now, he's, to make the story even more sort of bizarre, uh, she says that there's a local priest, okay, that she knows, and he's going to set her up. And she begins to get very, very excited. And all of a sudden, she talks her into selling all her assets and moving to this this town to get pick up this new teaching job. She's incredibly excited, and the same as the first time, she goes back to this, the you know, the the, the murderess, and uh, to say goodbye. And she's received with open arms in the kitchen, and same things happening. That that the, the big kettle, the big cauldron, it's oh boil, it's, it's boiling away, and she gets her to write a post dated card, and. It's never ever come to light as to how she actually convinced her. Could have been to do with magic, black magic. Look, there. Were, she, maybe she was incredibly charismatic and persuasive, but she gets this this school teacher, middle aged, to 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 write a letter, and she post dates it. And the letter basically says she's going to to teach in this wonderful school, and you know everything's going to be honky dory. She liquidates all her assets and uh, gives, gives somehow or other, the, you know, the murder, murderess gets, gets the money and while she's sitting in the kitchen, the same thing happens. She murders her, chops her up into nine pieces, puts her in the cauldron. Wait, nine again? Nine, always nine pieces. Weird. Okay. Always nine. Okay. And that will become very, very interesting towards the end of this story. But this time, you'll be pleased to know, she went through the whole process of boiling the body parts down, but on this occasion, she you'll be pleased to know she did not make cakes or cookies. You know what she made? No. She made candles. 
In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, at least she's gone back to a classic. All right, because yep. tallow uh, is, see, you, you can make candles out of fat. Yes, you? correct. Yeah. So she makes these beautiful fatty candles, and what she did, she poured some um, perfume into the into the the boiling oozing sludge, oh, which sort of gave the the whole soupy, um, uh, you know, mess this this yeah. great consistency. She then set the uh, the molds up, as you do, with the wick running through the centre, and she then uh, decants the um, uh, you know the fluid. And she makes these amazing candles. And apparently they smelt really good. Some people may have felt it was an odour that was familiar. Um, but, you know, people would have been given these candles as gifts. What I didn't tell you, Paul, is that with the first victim and the tea party, uh, she also ingested some of her own cakes, but she also gave them to her children. So we're talking, this is not good. Now, what happens then is that some of the friends begin to get a, a bit suspicious and they're just starting to sort of feel that things are not quite right when they get the postcard saying that everything's fine. And again, quiet town. You wonder how this could possibly happen in a small Italian village in northern Italy. Everyone knows everyone else, right? Everyone Someone's knows everyone. The smells, the fucking the, the disappearances, it seems... Uh, yeah, okay. And, but of course, after a few weeks, she's not mentioned anymore. Right. She's, just, she's lost to the annals of time. Now, the third victim was a, um, was a singer. And she was 53 years of age. And she was a, uh, an ex-operatic singer. Mm-hmm. She was bored. She, she just... You know, life was sort of getting her down and she was quite wealthy and she had a, a, a magnificent collection of gold jewellery. This story is actually of 
the three we're telling this is the most bizarre in terms of the victims because this um you know the uh, the murderess she says to her that she's found her a job in Florence yeah now the other uh, former opera singer she's overjoyed she thought it was too good to be true and so but she she said to um this third victim look you've got to be very secretive about this this is this is really really this is heavy duty i'm going to i'm pulling a lot of strings the owner of this factory that you're going to be working with actually is a gentleman that i had an affair with and i don't want my husband or ex-husband and children to suspect anything to do with that illicit relationship right okay so the victim her name is virginia Cassiopo, uh, she's 53 years of age. She says, look, I'm, I'm going to, um, to be very quiet about this. And, and um, what happens is that on November the 30th, mm-hmm. 1940, uh, again, the victim has liquefied all her assets and she's also left a lot of incredibly valuable jewellery. Now, she brings her back to her house uh, to say goodbye. And the the victim had actually had a bag with her and in the bag uh, were her jewels that she was not going to leave in this town. She was going to take them with her to start the new life. Uh-huh. She'd sold her house. Uh, she had bonds. She had securities. A lot of assets to the value of 35,000 lira goes to the house and the same thing happens. She gets knocked out, uh, murdered, cut into nine pieces. Now, with this particular victim, um, can you guess what she did with um, the liquid? Do tell. Okay, well, the first um, thing that she made with the first victim, of course, were the... uh, the cakes. Uh, the second victim, she made candles. But with this particular victim, after she'd boiled down this uh, the slurry of, of, of body fluids, mm-hmm. uh, you can only imagine what it must have been like. It's just it's just it's indescribable. But she made perfumed soap cakes. Okay. Now, these cakes were given out in the town. So can you imagine being in the shower using like cleaning yourself with the with the murder victims bodily fluids that have been sort of pressed into these cake patties it's not ideal not ideal and this it must have been so terrible as things began to be revealed now the former singer she that raised a little bit of suspicion with her friends and some of the women in the community who were regarded as amateur sleuths, they go to the local police officer or sergeant. Now, the most serious crime he'd ever, ever investigated in his 30 years in the police force was either chicken stealing or bicycle stealing. And he he goes to see the potential, um, you know, the murderess that everyone's saying, the, vi- the, the village is starting to, there's, there's sort of a groundswell of, of public opinion 
But this because is well and truly outside of this this police officer's. Kind that's of, right. But he yeah. goes to the murderess's house and he talks to her. Mm-hmm. And guess what? She beguiled him. She how? She just she just did it. She just kind of I don't know what she did. I don't know where she, you know, got a gear off and they shagged. I just don't know what happened. But he comes back to the police station uh, where these complainants are, and he basically says there's absolutely nothing wrong, nothing. But everyone's really, really suspicious. And just at the height of the maximum suspicion that all these amateur sleuths, the ladies of the town, mm-hmm. things as they were just starting to think this is ridiculous, all of a sudden a postcard arrives to one of the women that the murderess had got her to write. She sent her son to that same town, got him to to pop it in a letterbox, it comes back to the village, and of course, that takes the wind out of everyone's sails. But the two women in particular who were hardcore just thought, no, this is just not right. They kept going. Then they engaged the services of a very senior police officer. And the senior police officer says, look, we need proof. Then all of a sudden, one of the bonds... Yeah that had been presented to a bank by a priest. It's always good to bring a priest into these stories, particularly in Italy. He presents yeah. this bonded, well, I guess a sort of a monetary bond, mm-hmm. and it turns out that it belonged to the third victim. And so this very senior police officer says, look, we, we need some hard proof. They've got this call from the bank, and they go and arrest the priest. And there's also a businessman involved, and they arrest him as well. Now, what I'd like to say at this juncture is creepy and weird. You recall I mentioned the jewellery that belonged to the third victim? Yes. What she does, the murderess, what she does is she makes a concrete heart, and inside the concrete heart, she hides all of the gold jewellery. She presents the heart to a friend of hers and she says to him that this is an amulet that must be hidden in a dark place forever. No one is ever to find out about it and this will give you eternal good luck. Now the person that receives this concrete amulet, and I've seen photographs of it, you know, they they did what she said and they hide this concrete heart and that's important because when the police go to arrest the merchant Mm -hmm. and the priest what happens is it turns out that the concrete heart had been given to the merchant and the police they must it must have they must have picked up and it made a sort of a rattling sound and they, they cracked open this concrete heart oh. and inside it were the golden jewels yeah. of vic- victim number three, together with the, you know, the, the, the money document, the bond. So they then arrest the woman and she completely, she, she acknowledges all the stories, but she says, yeah, that this, everything's right, but, you know, I was given these things by these women. But one of the things that that brought this 
um, murderess undone in the village was that, and it often happens in, in many of our previous stories, is that when someone comes into extreme wealth like that, remember the story in Bondi with the guy who was, he was a motor mechanic working and he rocked up in an E-type Jaguar? Yeah. I mean, he'd been in that involved in the armed robbery. People just, they at a certain point, they just lose it. And what she did is that she started living beyond her means in terms of she was displaying, you know, signs of, of extreme wealth. She was also very generous with her money. She was she was giving money away. She was having parties. And things just, people are starting to think, well, hang on, where, where are you getting this extra money from? Yeah. So it was a combination of all these factors. They arrested her and... Yes, she admits to everything insofar as I knew the women, I said goodbye to the women. Uh, she doesn't obviously say how she got the money, but then they, because the son had been implicated, and to that point, before they arrested her son, she was adamant that she was not going to confess. In fact, then what she tries to do is transfer the blame back onto the priest and the, uh, the merchant. And she said it was the priest's idea, this whole story. And she's just, it's, got, it's basically got nothing to do with her. She was just um, an innocent sort of tool within this extraordinary story. Sure. But, but then it turns out that the merchant has an irrefutable alibi and the priest, and I found this a little bit weird, they basically said, look, he's a priest, he's, he's done great service, and they basically just sort of, you know, let him off the hook because of his position in society. And the second that the son, her 20-year-old son, who by all accounts was a lovely guy, such a sweet guy, he's at university, he's arrested, and then all of a sudden uh, the mother, the murderess, capitulates. Mm -hmm. And she she begins to detail the story of what happened and... She goes into extraordinary detail. She's almost proud of, of her pursuits and what she did and what she made with the bodies. And then she says that when her mother cursed her that, and all her children would, would die and she lost the first eight, she in her mind then believed to oh. save the final four children, yep. it had to be one for one. So she was. there was one more potential victim, but it didn't happen because she, because she believed that each murder would atone for the life of her existing children. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Now, this trial went on for five years. And she's in jail. She writes a book detailing an intimate and extreme um, detail. The book she wrote was in 12 chapters. It, it was more than 1,000 pages. And there were these leading doctors who all had these different opinions. The general consensus was because it turns out that this murderess had a servant and one day the servant leaves the house. He left the house. He saw the first victim coming to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. When he came back, 
an hour or so later, the, the, the lady wasn't there anymore. Medical and criminal and psychiatric and pathologist experts throughout the country mm-hmm. testified that it was impossible yeah. for a person to disrobe another human being, chop their body up into nine parts and completely conceal the atrocious crime within that short period because the servant, remember, came back to the house and says that there was nothing awry. Mm. Okay, listeners, this is the part of the story that we're going to finish on. This is one of the most messed up and bizarre stories that I've ever heard in my life, and I'm about to lay it on you, Paul, and listeners. Okay. During the court proceedings, yeah. expert witnesses, and I'm talking about medical um, you know, pathologists, all said it was impossible to cut up a body uh, within that short period of time. Okay, here's the, here's the clangor, everyone. The judge decided in his wisdom that they would take the murderess, and uh, I'm quite sure they didn't take the jury, and they went to the local mortuary. They presented her with a fresh corpse. They fucking did not. Yes. This is straight out of this restricted publication. You won't find this anywhere else. They then gave her a sharp knife and a saw, and in front of uh, the judge and the forensic experts, and obviously the prosecution and the defence counsel, she began to dismember the body. Guess how long it took her to cut up the body into nine pieces, Paul? How long? Twelve minutes. Oh, yes, that's a Guinness Book of Records. That's worthy of a, an entry. So that completely blew out the theory that, oh, no, it couldn't be done in an hour. But wouldn't, she in... wanna, but wouldn't she want to disprove them? No, she was absolutely... The main thing was that her son mm-hmm. had been exonerated. Right. And this was probably a cathartic experience. She had served <coughs> five years already. And one of the defence counsel brought in uh, a medical expert... And the hypothesis, because she was found not to be insane. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting medical uh, theories is that she'd contracted elephantitis when she was pregnant. And that affected her brain, which was disproved, of course. There were many, many, many theories. But as it is said in the annals of this particular case, the police, the prosecution, the defence, no one really had to do any real hard work. Why? Because she had outlined the intricacies and horrific details of her murder spree in her book. And it was all laid out in gruesome detail. So it it was pretty easy. It was a lay-down misere in terms of the court process. Holy shit. She was sentenced to 30 years in a female um, insane asylum, which is what they used to call them, and she died in 1970. I, when I read that bit about getting her to demonstrate, I mean, that is surreal. I don't know whether it was because it was wartime. And there's another little um, 
tiny anecdote, and I will I will not quote, but I'm because I don't need to because it's sort of etched in my sad mind, and that is that you may recall that she used to boil all the body parts in in the huge cauldron. Mm-hmm. What she used to stir and decant the liquid was a massive copper ladle, and from the witness uh, from the um, when she was a witness, you know, um, giving evidence in the witness box, she proudly looked to the jury and the judge and everyone in that court, and she said that because of the war, she really, really, and she believed what she was about to say. She she was so proud of what she said, which I'm going to now um, relate to you all, is that she donated the copper ladle to the war effort so that it could be melted down and used for whatever. Unbelievable. I'm never going to look at soap the same way. That's or ladles. Sure. Or ladles, or fucking, or home cooking. Jesus. Or candles, Christ. or cakes. Or post-war Italy. Um, look, that is a deeply harrowing story. And mm. it's really bizarre, and I, I, I agree. It is one of the most messed up... I mean, the nine thing, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. That could come back to satanic worship. Um, oh. Look, you could... Christine, as Christine's leaving this morning, she, we all know, because I said it before, she said, but, you know, what what didn't she do? Mm. But Christine turned around as she left our apartment this morning. Yeah. Her last words to me yeah. were, they could make a wonderful movie out of this. Well, I don't know and about she's, wonderful. Well, but... it, I think it'd be fascinating. Because mm. it's just, you don't... Isn't it funny in life... You know that the the old adage, truth is stranger than fiction. This is a classic case of yes, it is, because if you had, and I always like to think of having a team of writers, maybe twenty writers, Hollywood writers, sitting there coming up with the most. This takes the cake. Excuse the pun. It's really odd, and terrible, and disturbing, and we're very sorry if any of you were eating breakfast at the time, but. I think that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. We'll be back later this week with Loose Ends. Well, by the way, we hope you all enjoyed our three-episode week last week. We just wanted to spoil you rotten. And on that note, actually, this week on Loose Ends, Dad and I are going to tease a bit of an announcement coming up. So we're, make sure you stick around for that. In the meantime, have a great week, everybody. It's been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you. Don't light any candles or eat any food from strange women. And we will see you very, very soon for more Loose Units. Bye, everyone. Cheerio. Buongiorno. Ciao. <laughs> Ciao, prega. Oh, God. That was fuck. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.